It's time for mystery. Mystery Radio. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. It started with death on my doorstep and got worse when I lied to a sympathetic bull, was pistol-whipped by a gorilla with dimples, and fought with a kitten on the keys. And it might have gone on that way all night if I hadn't been helped by the king of the beasts. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The August Lion. one of those in-between hours, along about ten on a night at home when you don't quite know what to do with yourself. Then all of a sudden it's eleven, and then eleven-thirty, and you're in slippers and a robe and have done nothing, <laughs> which is exactly where I was, except that I'd already decided on one, and only one, very dry martini, a quiet cigarette, and bed, when it came loud, insistent, and unwelcome. No improvement when I opened up. I saw less than five hey. feet of excited cab driver hey. jumping up hey, and down. Mister, you Doc Marlowe? Yeah, I'm Doc. Doc Marlowe. That's right. Here he comes with a doc. You better make room. Is the sofa there okay? I'll clear it off. Oh, wait a minute, Jack. Who comes? Who? Okay, Mister. Bring her on in. The doc's here, all right. Hey, Doc. Is she stiff? She's out like a light. Who? The babe. Who do you think? Sure, too bad some people can't drink, huh, Doc? Yeah, it's real tough. Now tell me, do you? Hello, Phil. That's an angel. I'm sorry to bust in on you this way. Is the sofa all right? No, it's stuffed with granite. Put her in the bedroom. Okay, will you take care of the driver, please? Yeah, yeah. How much, friend? Well, uh, only 80 cents on a meter, Doc. A couple of was... bucks ought to cover it here. Good night. Good night, Diamond Jim. Well, Phil, I guess I'd better explain all this. Uh-huh. Here, I haven't seen you in six months, and when I do... Never mind around... the details, Judd Boy. Let's talk about the problem. Who's the girl? Her name's Voss. Eileen Voss, she's kind of a stockbroker. Maybe speculator's a better term. You know, takes big chances with other people's money. I was in love with her, Phil, until tonight. When what happened? When I found out I was just one of many, it, it threw me, Phil. I really lost my temper. I swore I'd kill her on sight. Yeah, most guys do at a time like that, Judd. What's that got to do with her being drunk? And by the way, while we're talking, I'll put on some coffee. No. Huh? No, don't, Phil. Why not? Because it can't help. She had a shot too many, all right. Only this one's a bullet in her head. She's dead. Oh, fine. Now, Phil, listen, please. You've got to help me. I've got to find out who did it. Phil, it started a couple of hours ago when I found out she'd been playing me for a sucker. I went to her place the first time in a week, boiling mad. The door was open. Judson Angel's eyes never left my face as he told the story from the beginning. A girl's body on the couch when he walked in, a neat hole in the back of her head. The gun he knew she owned shoved under a pillow. And in the next second, before he could even look in the other rooms, the arrival of the cabbie somebody'd called who thought Eileen was just another drunk who had to be shown the way to go home. How he seized on that as an opportunity to keep from being placed at the scene of the murder he had every reason to commit. 
How minutes after he was in the cab, he realized he was near my place. How to avoid suspicion, he said I was a doctor. Everything except why, specifically, he was so afraid of the police. I knew that was going to be next. Now, Phil, I suppose you want to know why I couldn't... couldn't possibly call the police. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I'd surely be booked and fingerprinted. And that had ruined me. You see, a long time ago, I served time in the state penitentiary in Illinois. What? Yes, yes. So I've kept it quiet. Only Phoebe Hammond in my office knows. It was for forgery, Phil. It was under another name and way back when I didn't know the difference between clever business and crooked business. Mm. It's taken ten years to work up my reputation as an accountant. So you see, if I get mixed up in this, it'll all come out and... Well, smash, lots of pieces, no more. Oh, you've got to help me, Phil. You've got to find the real killer before the police get to me. Please, Phil. I can't, Judd. They'd be smashing just as many little pieces for me, too, if I tried to pull anything like this on homicide. Oh, I'm sorry, Judd. I've got to report this body. But, Phil, look, what if you do report the body, but you say that you don't know anything about it, that you're going out to find what you can? What about that, Phil? Oh, please. Please, Phil. Okay. What's the girl's address? 91 Hollycrest Drive. 91 Hollycrest. Yeah, the, the door wasn't locked, Phil. Mm -hmm. Your phone number, Judd? Gladstone 3926. I won't move out of my place until I hear from you. Now, make sure you don't, Judd. Because if I can't find the real killer, I've got to tell what I know about you. You understand that, don't you? When Angel left, I called Detective Lieutenant Matthews of police headquarters and lied that there was a corpse in my apartment about which I knew nothing. And that I was on my way out to see what I could find. And I hung up fast, not feeling very good. Twenty minutes later, when I was in the plush living room at 91 Hollycrest Drive, I had zero to go on. Until I got to the bedroom where, caught in the folds of lace at the bottom of a petticoated vanity, I found a piece of male jewelry that stood out against that backdrop like argyle socks on a turtle. It was a gold tie clasp ornamented with the figure of a lion, a little more majestic than most. I dropped it into my pocket and then moved out into a long hall that led to the kitchen. I was about to start toward it when he spoke. Don't move, buddy. Like the voice, he was thick and soft, especially in the middle where he was girdled in double-breasted gray flannel. So I couldn't tell whether he was plus or minus a tie clasp. Also, he had no hair and a pair of deep dimples that danced when he talked. A gun in his hand, didn't it? Okay, turn around. Let's go back to the living room, buddy. I want to ask you a few questions. Like why you're taking inventory here. Well, it's my job. You see, I'm an auctioneer. The lady of the house won't need this stuff anymore. She's not going to... Shut up. Now stop where you are. And don't turn around. Okay, where's the girl? Come on, come on, where is she? Out. And only if you'll tell me why you want to know will I tell you where. You see, that way I come out even. Yeah, maybe. Lyleen Voss owes me money, buddy, and I want it now before she's flat broke. Now you, where is she? On her way to the morgue. Like you don't know. Well, what do you mean by that? I didn't kill her. Honest, engine. Listen, you. Get this straight. I came into this place just now for one reason only. To check on the Voss girl and make sure she wasn't on her way out of town, bag and baggage in hand, and my 50 grand. Now, don't forget that. I'll try not to. And don't move. Hello. Uh, no. No, she's not here. She is... Judy? Yeah. Yeah, it's me, honey. No, no, she's, um... She's out. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you about it later at, at, at the club. Yeah. Right, Judy. So long. Now, where were we, buddy? 
In the middle of a big fat lie, your reason for being here. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's where we were. And you know, that's a good old place to leave it. Ah! Oh, buddy. Twin telephones, lamps, and end tables next to me got back to being one of each again. I saw the note next to the phone that said, Call Monday at the garden room. Which didn't add too much until I realized that Monday was spelled not as the day in the week, but M U N D Y. And recalled that the garden room was a cozy collection of crepe paper flowers where some people did their serious drinking. That plus dancing dimples telling a girl named Judy who had called for Eileen in the first place. That he'd meet her at the club was a little better than the zero-plus tie class I'd been working with. And a half hour later, that little became a lot and things started to dovetail because a placard under glass in front of the garden room bragged about the glamour pianist featured inside, whose name was first Judy, second Monday, not his day in the week. I blessed my good luck, exchanged smiles only with a hat-check girl in the lobby, and found a table for one inside, not more than a half a dozen octaves away from Miss Monday's left hand. I'd ordered a drink and had a cigarette going before she paid any attention to me. I'll play anything you want. It's a rule of the house. Just name it, or hum it, or whistle. But don't croon. That's also a rule of the house. What'll it be? How about the number you always play for that fat friend of yours? You know, the one with the deep dimples? Berlaffy? Hmm. <laughs> Sure. Kind of corny. Remember it? Yeah. You a friend of his? Not exactly. I didn't think so. He'd crown you if he heard you say dimples. He's sensitive. You're new here, aren't you? I've been in once or twice. Mutual friend of ours used to speak well of you. Eileen Voss. What made her change her mind? She was murdered tonight. Any idea who did it? I said any... I heard you. No, miss, I haven't got the slightest idea. There, that's the end of your request. Sorry, but I'm only allowed one to a customer. It's a rule it's a of the rule... house, I know, yeah. I'll see you, Judy. Hello? This is Marlowe, Angel. In that order, I'm in a phone booth at a club called The Garden Room. What I found out so far won't impress Detective Lieutenant Matthews of the Homicide Squad at all when next we meet. But nothing in the apartment? No lead of any kind? I'm not sure, Judd. I ran into a round man with a sleek gun who piled me up and left before very much was said. But, Phil, The Garden Room, the girl there's a friend of Eileen's. Talk to her. Yeah, yeah, I already did, Judd. Got me the round man's name and no more. It was Berleffi. You mean anything? Berleffi? Yeah. That's right. He claimed Eileen had 50 grand that belonged to him. Yeah, that must be him then, Phil. Oh? Yes, he's a gray marketeer. Comes from San Francisco. I've never seen him, but the girl in my office, Phoebe Hammond, can help us. Mm-hmm. She once did some auditing work for Berta before she found out how crooked he was. She told me about him. I'll call her and have her meet you there, Phil. All right, but look, I'll be at a corner table facing the door and tell her to hurry, will you? I'll call you back later. Goodbye. Exactly one o'clock when what was at least three parts CPA to each part woman pushed the front door out of the way and entered. At the top, there was close-cropped hair, streaked with some gray. No hat. 
At the bottom, dark brown stockings running into darker brown shoes, no heels. In between, severely tailored tweed closed tight at the neckline. It took all of 15 efficient seconds to decide that I was her man. And less than that again to introduce herself, ask for a cigarette, and name her drink. When it was my turn to talk, I brought her up to date. Eileen Voss's murder included. It's too bad, Marlowe. Judd's a great guy. Yeah. It was only lunch today that he was knocking himself out, trying to figure what would be 4 for my birthday next week. <laughs> now this. Tell me, what can I do to help? Well, at the moment, Berleffi. All I know about him, Miss Hammond, aside from what I've told you, he said at Eileen's, is that he and Judy Monday are a team. And Judy was a friend of Eileen. <laughs> How cozy. Isn't it? Well, it goes like this. Berleffi's front name is Steve, and he's mm. out of San Francisco via Detroit and Chicago. And in each case, only a length of the subpoena ahead of the law. Oh? Back in the 30s, he was a mobster. The numbers game, protection racket, that kind of stuff. But after the war, he cashed in all his chips and went into a more or less legitimate business. With, of course, absolutely no change in tactics. Know what you mean. Now, look, can you tell me where he lives? No. But I'll bet my bottom dollar that the kitten on the keys here can. Mm. Only be careful. Berleffi has a reputation for shooting first and talking later. I only hope he isn't after Judd, too. You know, there might be some connection between them that goes back to the days when Judd was Francis Lyon and Berleffi was... Phoebe, did you just say Francis Lyon? That's right. L-Y-O-N. Uh-huh. Judson Angel is the name he took when he came out here. Why? What does that mean? I don't know. Here. Look at this tie clasp. Oh? The ornament. It's also a lion. I found it in the bedroom at Eileen's place, and yet... Judd told me that he hadn't gone past the living room. But... But, Marlowe, that doesn't prove that Judd lied. Why, it might not be his at all. Hmm. Have you ever seen it before? No, I haven't. Besides, I never knew Judd to wear a tie clasp. Okay. Could belong to Berleffi. But it's still worth checking after we get Judd out of his apartment. Look, where's your place, Phoebe? Mulholland Drive, 361 North. 361. About a mile up into the hills. I'll let you do the trick. Honey, you go home and stay close to the fireside. I'll get a hold of Judd and tell him to get over there fast. And then maybe we... We can... Maybe we can what? What is it, Marlon? Outside, Phoebe. It's a man coming this way. Berleffi? Worse. Goodbye, baby. I'll see you later at your place. I've been afraid of this all night. But who is it? What's his name? Detective Lieutenant Matthews. He's a police officer, Phoebe. First, last, and always. So long. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, music you like best of all, whether it's classical favorites or popular old ballads, is the music you hear when you tune in Sunday afternoon to the Symphonette and the Choral Ears. This Sunday, the Symphonette plays popular operatic pieces and has as guest Milton Kay, pianist, who will play the final movement from Rachmaninoff's Concerto No. 2 in C minor. The male choir and Lenny Stokes, featured baritone of the chorus, will bring you Pale Moon, The Wizard of Oz, Alice Blue Gown, Make Believe, and other favorites. Yes, it's the music you like when you tune in the Symphonette and the Choral Ears every Sunday over most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The August Lion. I left Phoebe Hammond at the table and moved toward the bar. My first impulse was run, do not walk, this is a different kind of an emergency. 
But a quick glance into the mirror behind me tagged that as suicide and pushed tri-nonchalance into its place because I could see that Detective Lieutenant Matthews had already spotted me. When he was closer, I could also see that nonchalance would go over like uh, punching him in the nose on the steps of City Hall. All right, Phil, that little game is over. Now let's have it straight and fast. Who are you working for? And don't bother with the pitch on professional ethics, so we'll try this all over again down at headquarters. His name, what is it, Phil? Judson Angel, he's a friend. Yeah. Who is what to the corpse? He was in love with her, but he didn't kill her. Oh. Now look, Matthews, I've never held out on you before, have I? Which means you want to start now, huh? What are you getting at, Phil? My client's in a jam, Lieutenant. He didn't kill the girl, but unless I can find out who did, he's an eyebrow deep in a mess that doesn't even concern him. Which has what to do with you playing bashful tipster on the phone with the body being in your bedroom and Marlowe starring like a one-man police force? Will you listen? Come on, Phil. I've been an hour and a half just finding you. Now level. Why is this Judson Angel in a jam if he didn't do it? Okay, okay. We'll try it honest-like. He once did time in another state under another name way back when he had less sense. Ah. If he's booked and fingerprinted, it'll be splashed all over the papers. He'll be ruined. Why? What's his business? Well, today it's accountancy and then it was forgery. You can see that side by side they don't make a very handsome couple. Now, come on, Matthews. Give the guy a break. Will you take my word? He deserves it. What do you want me to do? Give me some time. If I don't have the answers, I'm out of luck and so is Judson Angel. Please, Matthews. All right, all right, Phil, all right. Sixty minutes. Uh, And if I don't hear from you, by ten after two, we start all over again down in headquarters, your client included. I'll be waiting for your call, Phil. Good night. Detective Lieutenant Matthews was nobody's keystone cop, and I knew that when he said 60, count him 60 minutes, he meant just that and no more. So I found a nice and public phone booth at a gas station across the street, and while I kept one eye out for Berleffi and Associates, I dialed Judson Angel's number. But in the next second, when I was through to him, I knew that I could forget about Berleffi on my end. Phil, I'm in trouble here. Outside a man and woman. They're coming up the walk now. He's fat and gray flannel? Yes, yes. She just pulled up in a cab, but he's been out there 20 minutes watching the place. Berleffi, listen, Judd, get out the back way. Get over to Phoebe's place. Oh, he's out the door now, Phil. He's kicking it in. Phil, Phil, get up here. 21 South Orange Lane. Judd, do as I say, will you? Get out. Get to Phoebe's place on Mulholland Drive. I'll see you there. Hurry. All right, Marlowe. All right. Marlowe, he's in. Judd! Put that phone down, Angel, or I'll kill you. Now. When I screeched to a stop at number 21 South Orange Lane, which was lights out, front door open, and no car parked in sight, I went inside. Just visible in the moonlight was the huddled figure I'd been afraid I'd find. What I didn't know until I was kneeling next to it was that it was Judy Mundy, not my client, and only unconscious, not dead. There was a large white envelope lying next to her, and beyond that, a litter of broken porcelain that had once been a lamp. I switched on a light, found some brandy, and then brought her to as fast as I could. Marlowe. Yeah, and with a brand new request. Here, take a drink. Now, I'll ask the questions. One, what happened here with the three of you? Where's Burleffi and, more important, Judd Angel? Come on, baby, talk fast. All right. The angel got away. I don't know where he is. Burleffi? Dead, I hope. Got him to thank for that lamp getting together with my head. How come? Angel made a break for it, kicked out the lights and tossed the lamp at the same time. Hero Berleffi used me for a shield, then took off after him. Mm. Your connection with both Berleffi and Eileen Voss, what was it? I forget. Come on, Judy, baby, talk. You're not going to get another chance this side of the witness box. Witness box? What for? Your girlfriend's murder, trial by jury, an old Yankee tradition, you remember? I didn't have anything to do with Eileen getting killed. They can't tie that onto me. They can try. Now, what'll it be? It'll be... 
It'll be what you want. That's better. I only got chummy with Eileen in the last month, Marlowe, because Berleppi told me to. He was my boyfriend. Hooray for love. Go on. What was in it for Berleppi? He wanted to know where Eileen got her tips on the market. That way he could skip paying her any commission. Figures. What went wrong? Nothing. Only instead of finding out how well she knew who, I discovered she was going broke, period. The rest of it, you, Eileen, being dead, that muscle woman you talked to in the bar... All wait a minute, you... wait a minute, wait a minute. What about that girl in the bar? You two get together? Oh, not for very long. Hmm. After you left the table, she went outside, so I followed. Why? Because the cow jumped over the moon. Why do you think? I was still working for Belefe, remember? I thought it would help if he knew where she fit in. What'd it get you? A slap in the face. It said she was raised on barbells. And this envelope here that fell out of her pocket. Oh? Don't get excited about it. It's only one of those horoscope charts. What do you do? Collect them as a hobby? When there are notes on the back, yeah. However, for a friend, Berleffi was unimpressed. Yeah, look yourself. It's double talk. Mm. Cost plus less 10%. 90 days, will you listen? Yeah, strictly a CPA's margin notes. Doesn't mean it. you... Molly, your mouth's open. What is it? You look dumb. Dumb I am and have been all night. Sweetheart, in your own clumsy way, you may have saved Judson Angel's life. What are you talking about, Marlow? According to this horoscope, it's written in the stars. Maybe I'll make a good cop happy. Goodbye, sweets. Drive is a fancy collection of hairpin turns and deceptive curves along the top of a mountain that separates Hollywood and Beverly Hills from the San Fernando Valley. But when I was on it and burning up good rubber at each bend as I headed for number 361 North, gas pedal on the floor, driving conditions were the least of my worries. And it wasn't until I had parked away from the bungalow that perched on the edge of a cliff and was out of my car, 38 in hand and close to a half-open French window, that I breathed a long, long sigh of relief. Because then I could clearly see that Judson Angel was still alive. I swallowed the sigh fast when I could also see Angel's face. It said there was nothing permanent about his good health. Because on the other side of the room, and only visible to me via a corner mirror, was the reason why. Holding on tight to a short, ugly revolver was the one the horoscope had said could be Eileen Voss's killer. The CPA known as Phoebe Hammond. While she talked, I moved around to where I'd be able to take aim in one straight line. I didn't want to kill Eileen in the first place. It was an accident. I don't believe you. It doesn't matter now. You see, I'd invested some money with her, Judd. Money that wasn't mine. When I found out she was going broke, I went up to see her and demanded it back. She laughed at me. I got mad. I hit her. She took out a gun and said she'd call the police if I didn't leave. I grabbed it away from her. Then I shot her. Then you were there when I came in? Yes. When I saw you and that cab driver she'd called earlier take the body, I, I didn't know what to do. Until later, when I met with Marlowe on your behalf and learned all about Berleffi and the tie clasp he'd found. The tie clasp with the lion on it that you'd recognize as mine if Marlowe ever got the chance to show it to you. But he won't, Judd. I can't let him. Phoebe, Phoebe, you're crazy. You're crazy. You'll never get away with it. Oh, this. yes, I will, Judd. It'll be Berleffi they'll blame. He entered your room with a gun in his hand. I know. I saw him and that girl. Also, Judd, I'm the reason you got away from him. I rammed into his car when he started after you. It's too bad, Judd. Worse than that, Phoebe, it's a crying shame. Marlo! Lights! The lights! Stop, Phil! She can see your silhouette! I can follow her footsteps. We're even. Phil, the terrace. She's trying to get away. There she is, outside. She tripped, Phil. The rail! Ah! 
Oh. Oh, holy smoke. Phil, it's a it's a good two hundred feet down to solid rock. Yeah. Come on away from it, Judd. Time we made a phone call. It was four o'clock in the morning. We were still on top of the mountain before the police had found the broken body of Phoebe Hammond. Berlefi had been picked up, and in lieu of anything better booked for breaking and entering Eileen Voss's place. When the parade of law, press, and just curious who always show up at the scene of a murder had finally left, it made it just me and Judd and a cop named Matthews. Well, let me see if I got this straight for the records, Phil. First, you thought it was a tough called Berlefi. And second, you were afraid you'd been a sucker and it was really your client. And finally, you figured it had to be a woman who all the way looked like she was no more than along for the ride. Huh? What? You mean you really believe I could have done it, Phil? Well, yeah, it looked that way for a while, Judd. You know, you said you hadn't been past the living room up at Eileen's, and yet I found a tie clasp in the bedroom there ornamented with a lion. And then I found out your real name was also lion. It almost added. Yeah, but since you didn't have a chance to find out whether or not Berleffi was missing a tie clasp, you still considered that was only circumstantial evidence, am I right? Right, yeah. yeah. Until I ran into the switch, which was an envelope that had belonged to Phoebe Hammond. There was a horoscope chart inside. Which meant what? Well, it only meant that she went in for that stuff no more until I remembered her mentioning that her birthday was next week, which is early August. And that, no doubt, puts her under the sign of the Zodiac run by one Leo the Lion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, and the mannish tight-neck suit she always wore could have meant a shirt and tie underneath, minus clasp. Exactly, gentlemen. <laughs> That's it. Uh, <clears throat> now... Me, Lieutenant, uh... What? Look, when you get back down to headquarters and, you, you know, you start the paperwork... Yeah. Do you have to mention a guy named Judson Angel? Uh, a guy named what? Judson Angel. Mm. <laughs> 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 uh, nothing, nothing. I, I, I was just thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah, that's mm. a bad practice, Phil, you know? It's kind of like <laughs> only telling a policeman half of what you know can uh, get you in trouble. Mm. Unless you're lucky. Oh, uh, give you a lift, Mr... Uh, you, Mister. you already have. Thanks, Lieutenant. And Phil, I... Good night, Judd. When Judd and the Lieutenant left, I figured I'd have a last cigarette on the terrace. Think a little about the desperate people I'd met on a night that it started out to be quiet. I found myself not smoking, not watching the early sun brighten the valley below, and not thinking about much of anything except the overturned stone flower pot that was lying next to the splintered rail where Phoebe Hammond had tripped and taken her final plunge. It was an ordinary square flower pot with an ordinary flower in it. But the figure in relief on the side was a lion resting on its haunches. And you know, as I looked at it, I thought it was a little more majestic than most.
adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and was directed tonight by Cliff Howell. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, D.J. Thompson, Wally Mayer, Barney Phillips, and Jerry Hausner. Lieutenant Detective Matthews is played by Larry Dotkin. The special music is written by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with an Indian gift of a piece of pottery and led to a brown bear and moccasins, an archaeologist, much laughing water, and finally, death in an alley. But just to make matters worse, the Indian giver was a female and 100% genuine hot-blooded Apache. Now, another mystery on Mystery Radio XXX. Whitehall 1212. This is Scotland Yard. For the first time in history, Scotland Yard opens its official files to bring you the authentic, true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These are the true stories, the plain, unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names of the participants have, for obvious reasons, been changed. The stories are presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard. Research on Whitehall 1212 comes from Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Chief Superintendent John Davidson will brief you on this case, number 381397. Good afternoon. This Gladstone bag is one of my exhibits in the Black Museum back there. Perfectly ordinary black Gladstone bag, vintage, I should say, 1920. Now, it doesn't unlock any longer. The lock has been forced. But it can be opened. Now, you can guess for yourself what those stains are. You see, they're both on the lining of the bag and on this tennis racket cover, which has been in the bag since Easter weekend of 1924. And now, if you please, here is Inspector Rape Sylvester who I think will tell you how this bag came into our possession here at Scotland Yard's Black Museum. I could supply the answer quite simply and quickly, sir. Yeah, I know that one, old boy. The owner had no further use for it. The owner had no further use for anything, sir, except the services of Pierpoint the hangman. Robert Emmett Dignam worked very hard at being a hale fellow well met. He was a dapper man, a persuasive talker, and thus an excellent salesman, despite the fact that he was only five feet two inches tall. Dignam's wife, Olivia, who worked as a contomitum uh, operator at a salary of three pounds a week, entertained certain suspicions of her husband, due largely to his undeniable attraction for other women, particularly tall women. She herself was an inch shorter than her husband, a scant five foot one in height. One day when Robert Emmett Dignam had returned home to Kew from a weekend trip, 
to Manchester, he'd said, on business. Olivia Dignam came across a cloakroom ticket from Waterloo Station in a pocket of the suit he had worn. She asked an old friend of hers, Herbert Chin, for advice. Chin, who had been a detective sergeant of the Metropolitan Police, took the ticket and went to the Waterloo Station cloakroom to see what was what. He was not a particular friend of Robert Emmett Dignam. And then he came to see me at Scotland Yard. Oh, I turned in the ticket and the man handed me a bag, a black Gladstone bag. It was locked? Locked, yes. But I was able to pull the sides apart a bit. So you could see what was in it? Yes. What was? It was empty. Mm-hmm. Except for some pieces of silk, what looked like a tennis racket case and a large knife. Well, that's an odd combination, I agree, but... Well, I'll take my oath. They were all stained with blood. Chin gave me the ticket which he had got back when he returned the bag to the cloakroom shelves. I took it and went to see for myself. I, I took one of the pieces of silk and sent it to the laboratory to be tested. Back came the report. Human blood. I put two detectives on a 24-hours-a-day watch of the cloakroom. At nine o'clock the next morning, they brought him in and left him in my office. I asked him his name. Robert Emmett Dignam, Inspector. <laughs> Named after the great Irish patriot, you know. This your bag, Mr. Dignam? Well, I paid for it. Is it yours? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I left it in... Uh, uh, you know what's in it? What I'd love to know is how it came to be here. You left the ticket for it in a pocket of your green suit. Oh. My beloved wife goes through my pockets. She does, sir. At least she did in this instance. She wants a thrashing, doesn't she? I shouldn't let a constable catch you at it. I shan't, thank you. I asked you if you know what's in your bag, sir. Nothing very important. Shall we look? Um, will you unlock it? These things your? Well, that's my tennis racket case. Your name is Dignam, you said? Yes. Initials on it are I-J-M. Eh? Not yours, are they? I bought it from a friend several years ago. Hmm. These pieces of silk and this knife. Cook's knife, big one. I must have picked it up at the bungalow. These stains, Mr. Dignam, can you explain them too? Oh. Why, I'm very fond of dogs. Dogs? Yes, I was carrying some dog meat in the bag. Oh, odd place to carry it, I know. <laughs> I had it all wrapped up in these bits of silk. That's where the stains came from, old boy. What sort of meat was it? Oh, whatever kind of meat, uh, you know, dog... Beef or, or horse meat, perhaps. Oh, yeah, probably horse meat, I fancy. That blood is from the meat? Of mm. course, I, I said... It uh, was human blood that caused those stains, Mr. Dignam. I should be glad to hear your explanation of that, sir. Well, all I can say is that it was dog's meat. What kind of dogs do you have, sir? Oh, I haven't got any... I mean... <laughs> what do you find so amusing, sir? <laughs> oh, all this is making me sound quite like a murderer, isn't it? Mr. Dignam, I must detain you on suspicion of murder. Look here. And I warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. If you have anything to say now, I'll be glad to hear it. Well, well, I'll have to think about that. Mr. Dignam thought. He thought for a long time. Sitting in my office, staring out of the window at the rain... Ten minutes went by. I looked at him. 
I've got to get some things straight in my mind. Take your time, Mr. Dignam, I said. He sighed, asked for a drink of water, drank it thirstily, and returned to his staring out the window. Another fifteen minutes went by. <clears throat> Speaking to me, Mr. Dignam, I asked. I suppose you know all about this, don't you? I've no intention of telling you what we know, Mr. Dignam. It's for you to tell us if you want to. You've been warned. What? That anything you say may be used in evidence. Yes. Well, it isn't murder. What are you writing down? What you've just said. Oh. Well, it isn't murder. I've been very foolish, perhaps. Write that down, too. Yeah. I'll make a statement now. I've got it all straight, what to say. When you are ready, Mr. Dignam. I do not know who this fellow was, this man. I'd gone for a weekend's rest to the bungalow. I've been very exhausted. I worked very hard, you understand, and I felt the need for a rest. Alone, all by myself. To recuperate, to regain my strength. I didn't tell my wife or anyone where I was going. I wanted no interruptions, you understand, either uh, business or domestic. Are you getting all that? Yes. I had come across this place in my travels. A capital place to be alone, I thought at once. To rest, to refresh myself, I thought at once. A genuine deserted cottage on the deserted seashore. I told no one about my plans. I, I took only just a few articles of clothing. Uh, oh, and, of course, the tennis racket. The tennis racket you refer to is the one that was in the case marked with the initials IJM. Eh? Uh, that's the one. Uh, the one I bought from someone several years ago. I went to this place alone and settled down for the evening. About midnight, I was awakened from a sound sleep uh, by a sound. Uh, shall I go slower? Thank you, I'm getting it all right. A man, a tramp by his appearance, I have no clue whatever to his identity, burst into my room. He told me he wanted my money. I leaped out of bed, and seeing he was much larger than I, started to retreat. He seized an axe. An axe? Uh, it was used for chopping up firewood, and he threw it at me. He attacked me first. Got that? Yes. The axe rebounded from the wall and the handle was broken. Then, despite the difference in our sizes, I grappled with him. He slipped and fell, his head striking the edge of a large coal scuttle alongside the fireplace. He did not get up. To my horror, I discovered he was dead. Have you got that? Yes. I'm afraid I lost my head. I carried the body into the other room. Then I think I fainted. When I recovered consciousness, I was horrified to find the body still on the couch where I had placed it. Then I made my greatest mistake. I was panicky. I thought I might be accused of murder. <clears throat> my first thought was to dispose of the body. Do you know what I did? No. I first tried to burn the body in the fireplace. The clothes caught on fire, but I grew more frightened. I 
put on my coat and I walked to Eastbourne where I bought the large knife, uh, the one in the bag. I came back and then when I got I back will into the spare cottage, you I the rest the of Robert Emmett Dignam's gruesome story, except for the curious commentary Herbert Chin, the friend of Mrs. Dignam's no maid on the case. The man was, Dignam was concluding his statement with the telephone rang. I'm a fool. Excuse me. Inspector Sylvester here. Herbert Chin here. Oh, oh, how do you do? I take it you got him. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I saw his wife. I told her it was his raincoat Dignam had left at the Waterloo cloakroom, but, but she won't be satisfied. Oh? Well, she's sure it's something to do with some woman he's been chasing. Has it turned out that way? I mean, is it permissible to ask you that? Turns out quite different, it seems, Teller. Well, she'll be glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, she keeps insisting this man and girl is involved in it somehow. Oh, she'll be very glad. Uh, what, uh, what was that name? Manning. Irene Josephine Manning, that's her full name, I believe. I looked over at the initials on the tennis racket case in the black Gladstone bag. I.J.M. Irene Josephine Manning. So that was the name of the former owner. Was it also the name of... Go on, Mr. Dignam, I said. I didn't mention the name of Irene Josephine Manning to Dignam at this time. Rather, I sat and squirmed with impatience while he told me more details of the place where the alleged tramp had been accidentally killed. It was at a place called the Crumbles, a long stretch of shingle on Pevensey Bay near Eastbourne in East Sussex. Shingle, as you Americans perhaps do not know, is a... Well, it's a kind of... Pebbly, rocky beach, very unpleasant underfoot. The Crumbles is as desolate a spot as could be found on the southeast coast. Windy and dreary, deserted by nearly all human life. The cottage where the tragedy had occurred, Digdom told me, bore the quaint name of um, the officer's house, part of a former Coast Guard station. And Dignam had rented it from a Mr. Saul Brainerd. When Dignam had finished his statement, he was tucked into a cell at Cannon Row Police Station, and I motored to Eastbourne to interview Mr. Brainerd. I'm Brainerd, Inspector. What have I done now? You've rented a house, Mr. Brainerd. Well, I suppose it was a crime to charge three and a half guineas a week for that place. Oh, I'll go along peacefully. Uh, You did rent it to Mr. Dignam, then? Dignam? I told him his name was Plunkett. Old Irish family, he said. Related to Lord Dunsany. Little bit of a chap. Hmm. Recognize him again, would you? Oh, he's unmistakable. Cocky little beggar. Paid up, of course. Oh, for two more weeks. Well, that's why I haven't been around there. Said he liked privacy, and I'm no trespasser, though I am a landlord. I wonder when you saw him last. Well, I saw him and his wife come in. I was cycling by. He, he didn't see you? Well, I don't think so. He was up there on the road. His wife? Oh, great tour girl. Sure it wasn't another man you saw? Great mop of blonde hair blowing in the wind. We've no long-haired men around here. Leave that for London. Besides, he did mention his wife to me when he rented the place, seems to me. Well, when was that? Saturday evening. Late afternoon, rather. Why, what's up? Haven't seen him since? Or her? Haven't been around. Said he was looking for privacy, as I said. Yes, yes, I expect he was. Good place for it. Yes. Would you come to London and see if you recognize him? Isn't he here? No. 
I sell, chap. What's up? Things. Uh, would you? Well, the affair to London... Oh, the home office will pay it. Oh, in that case, the answer's yes. Well, won't mind if I go round to my tailor's whilst I'm there, will you? Not at all, if you'll come. Say no more. I'm your man for a free trip to London. What else can I do for you? Bottle of whiskey? Or a cup of tea? Thanks. Uh, just let me use your keys to get in the place. She'll let you in. I doubt she's there. Oh, I don't know if I should let you in, old boy, after all. I've got a search warrant. Oh, something is out there. Uh, what are you looking for? Proceeds of a bank robbery? Well, <laughs> hardly, hardly a robbery. Oh, you won't talk, eh? Well, look, the big one here is for the front door. This one? Oh, well, all the others are for various rooms. Mm -hmm. They're labeled, see? Sure you won't need any help, then? No, no, thanks. I'd like to go back to London with me today. We'll catch the up train at 4.30, shall we? Oh, righty-ho. Righty-ho. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks, old chap. I'll see you later. I walked over to the dismal little walled house. It had a dank look. I glanced over my shoulder. Brainerd was still watching me. I walked through the gate in the wall, and I couldn't see him any longer. Up to the house. The sound of the sea. The smell of the sea. And then another smell. I remembered the time the sergeant cook at Naughty Ash Rest Camp in Southampton had let a pork roast catch on fire and we went without dinner. I felt like... Well, never mind. I unlocked the door and opened it. I walked in. There was the fireplace choked with ashes. There was the coal scuttle. He said the tramp cracked his head on fatally. Tin. Crumpled tin. There was the axe. The axe, he said, had been thrown at him. The handle was broken. Exactly the way he said it was. Bloodstains, I thought they were on the floor. What's that? White thread. Looks like a long blonde hair. Huh. Let's keep that. What's in the other room? What's that? Leather heel. High heel. Of a woman's dark blue shoe. What's that? Bloodstains. And here, too. And the tramp died when he struck his head on the coal scuttle out there. Mm-hmm. Let's review it all again, I thought to myself. The broken axe handle. Check. The crumpled coal scuttle. Might be. I doubt it. The woman's high heel. Maybe. The woman, the wife that Brainerd saw. The knife, he said he bought it in Eastbourne. Who's that? 
Brainerd. How did I interrupt you, Inspector? Come on, the London train's due in 20 minutes and we've just got time. I don't want to miss the free trip to the city, old man. We caught the next train. Just caught it, as a matter of fact, because I had to stop at all the ironmonger shops in Eastbourne to inquire about a cook's knife. I deposited Brainerd at the West End Hotel and went home for a night's sleep. Seven o'clock the next morning. I called Alfred Ormerod, the home office pathologist at home. He was annoyed. It better be important, Sylvester. I've got lather all over my face. Well, take my word for it, Alfred. But take your word for what, man? It's important. Well, well, well go ahead. My face itches. Can you tell the difference between a man's body and a woman's? Are you daft? When they've been destroyed by fire? I repeat my question. Have you taken leave of your senses, Sylvester? What's the answer? No. Now, look, my face feels Will like... you come to the office at the yard at once, please? I'll be there at half past nine. Not a second earlier. But look... I suggest that you go shave yourself, Inspector. I'll see you at 9.30. Good morning. Well, that's that. Oh... Inspector Sylvester here. Oh, uh, Chin. Herbert Chin here, Sylvester. I've been trying to get you, but your telephone's been busy. What do you want? Well, look here, about, about this chap Dignam. What about him? Oh, you remember I mentioned that girl, that Irene Manning to you yesterday, the girl he was chasing after? Yes. Well, look here, she's disappeared. How do you know? Well, her sister. Her sister, Julie Manning, she's at Mrs. Dignam's home right now, screaming for Dignam's blood. Oh? She says her sister's been missing since Saturday afternoon, and she's certain she's gone away with Dignam. Dignam's in Cannon Row Police Station. Oh, but where's Irene Manning? Is this sister with Mrs. Dignam now? Yes. Can you bring her to my office at Scotland Yard at once? Well, I'll try. I'll be there in less than half an hour. Goodbye. Uh, but... Now, where are my trousers? Oh. Yes? Inspector Sylvester here. Cannon Row Police Station here, sir. Sorry to bother you with this hour, sir, but... What's the matter? This prisoner of yours, uh, Dignam. What's wrong with him? Oh, he's been raising all kinds of canes. Says he wants to see you at once. Says it's extremely important. Well, sir. send him over to my office at the yard with a couple of men. I'll see him. Is he dangerous, sir? He is. How soon do you want him, sir? I'll be there in 20 minutes, I hope. Thank you, sir. I'll be glad to get rid of him. Goodbye. Now, if that thing rings just once more... But it didn't. I got to my office at New Scotland Yard, still adjusting my braces. I glanced at the clock. It was five minutes before eight. In the waiting room, Herbert Chin sat beside a tall, blonde girl. I'll see you in a moment, I muttered, and went on into my office. There was Robert Emmett Dignam, flanked by two large constables. He jumped up when he saw me. There you are at last. Well? Look here, I didn't murder anyone. So you said, Mr. Dignam. I, I mean, this tramp who attacked me with the axe fell and smashed his own head. That's all that happened. And uh, you disposed of the body, you said. Well, I was uh, confused. I was frightened. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sorry. Well, you can't keep me in jail for that, you know. I'm afraid I can't do anything for you, Mr. Dignam. That's a matter for the magistrate. I'll get a writ of habeas corpus. Do you have anything to add to your statement of yesterday, Mr. Dignam? I told you everything. I've nothing to add. Well, when you have, I'll be glad to take it down in writing. Until then, I'm sorry. Listen to me, you. Now, listen, I'll I tell take you... the little I... man away, Constable, please. I'm going to jail. You're not going to hang me. You're not going to... Let me... 
Herbert Chin came in with the tall blonde girl whom he introduced. This is uh, Miss Julie Manning, Inspector. Sit down, Miss Manning. My sister's gone. You have any idea where she is, Miss Manning? Yes. That man Dignan murdered her. What makes you think that? Well, I, I really lent him money and I know what he did with it. She thought he was speculating with it. You can make some more money for both of them. But he lost it on the races. How do you know that, Miss Manning? Sorry, he was the one that found it out. I know all about it. He promised to desert his wife and marry her. And he told her they'd go to South America when she accused him of spending every penny she'd saved. Well, that doesn't argue that he murdered her, Miss Manning. Then where is she? Tell me where she is if he didn't kill her. Now, Julie, please. You keep quiet. I know where she went with him last Saturday. He told her to come to Eastbourne with Eastbourne? Yes. He told her he'd give her the money there at his cottage. And, well, she told me about it. I told her she was a fool, but she won't go. And <laughs> he's murdered her. I tell you, he's robbed her of every penny she owned. And when she wasn't any more use to him, he took her away and murdered her. He murdered her. She told him she'd have him arrested and put in prison for the rest of his life for stealing her money, and he, he killed her. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Irene. <laughs> He said he walked to the village and bought a knife after the tramp had died. The ironmonger in Eastbourne said a little man who was with a tall blonde woman had bought the heavy knife when they got off the train in Eastbourne. They laughed together about it, he said. He bought the knife before they went to the cottage. And they laughed together about it. Alfred Ormerod, the pathologist, you remember, came in at half past nine. He left on the 10-3 for Eastbourne with his murder kit promising to telephone me. At 10.15, the landlord Brainerd came in. Uh, I'm sorry I'm late, but I've just been to the bank. Bank? That, that thief Plunkett. Plunkett? Oh, oh, Dignam. Oh, whatever his name is. I just got a check back from the bank stamped R.D. My wife sent it to me from Eastbourne. No funds, the bank says. Uh, I had him hanged. I walked over to Cannon Row with Brainerd. He recognized Dignam at once as Plunkett, and the dapper little man was charged again, this time with obtaining money by false pretenses. He again pleaded with me. Even if the man died, even if I did dispose of the body, Inspector, they can't do anything to me for murder. Even if I killed him, it's manslaughter, isn't it? Justifiable homicide. It's self I'm sorry, Dignam. Perhaps Robert Emmett Dignam already felt the clammy touch of the hangman's hands on his neck. At four o'clock that afternoon, Alfred Ormerod telephoned me from Eastbourne. Hello, Sylvester. I've been working all day here at the cottage. I've never seen such a diabolical thing. All those ashes in the fireplace are human ashes. Yes, I can prove it. Although the ashes of the bones have apparently been crushed to powder... It's almost perfect destruction of a body. Yes, I found the heel of a woman's slipper. That can be identified, I'm sure. I also found several other things. 
Traces of ashes have been carried out of the house. Two small pins. Hair clips, I think you call them, near the door. He was going to throw the ashes into the sea. Yes, I found it, too. It was snagged under a rock at the water's edge. Yes. Two or three blonde hairs still adhere to it. I'm sure you can identify it by the teeth. A young woman, yes. And the marks on the back of them. On the back, just above the point where the neck joins it. Yes. It was crushed. No, it couldn't have been caused by a fall against the uh, cold scuttle. The scuttle's too flimsy. Besides, the wounds don't fit any part of the cold scuttle. They do fit the blade of the axe, though. Right. I'm afraid you're hanged. did hang. When it was demonstrated in court that he had bought the knife before he enticed the girl to the cottage, they laughed over it together, the ironmonger said. When they fitted the axe into the wounds on what Alfred Ormerod proved was a young, blonde-haired girl's skull, when the whole sorry tale was told about his relations with Irene Manning and his fleecing of her money, then the jury said, guilty. And dapper little Robert Emmett Dignam was hanged. You have just heard another in the series Whitehall 1212 compiled from the official files of Scotland Yard. The research is from Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Join us again next time on Mystery Radio X. X.